to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast furnishing an entire room in our house just for Kate Winslet. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my sweet Molly Malone, Joe Reed. Uh, cockles and muscles. To you. Co- cockles and muscles! What exactly is a cockle? I imagine something like a muscle, some sort of shelled... Um, some type of shellfish that we could get um, in uh, like a lovely wine sauce. It's probably British slang for something. Let's see. Cockle. Cockle Gary's is... get at us and tell us what a cockle is and if we can have it with a yeah, nice wine sauce. It's a shelled... It's a, it's, it looks sort of like a, like a clam. I love shellfish. I don't love clam like i'm never gonna jump to clams but i do love shellfish oh i guess it um, most it most specifically resembles a scallop so there we go oh love so scallop. imagine so fabio sounds... uh saying this is not top cockle this is top chef uh <laughs> it's my favorite fabio quote from it is not top scallop this is top chef um oh, fabio um i know Joe, we're here with a sad day. Not just because we're talking, I know. obviously, about a very sad movie. We had planned to do this episode... Anyway, yeah. ...before the news of Terrence Davies' unfortunate, untimely passing. Yeah. I was very, very sad. You were very sad. We, f- we found out in, like, in the middle of a- taking a break, recording our... Um, what would have been the episode that we were recording even kill bill 2 i think May, um, or maybe it was right <clears throat> after we were done recording it wasn't because i remember i was doing the post production and i was like oh, i was taking a break and like i came back and you were like oh terence davies died so like we were oh. in the middle of recording um it was very sad uh, especially because he's always been a filmmaker who i was more aware of than i still haven't watched all of his big ones and like that'll be a project that i will happily embark upon in the next year or so but i was such a huge fan of benediction and that one really like you know it that does one seem really like a movie that me. unlocked his work for a lot of people <clears throat> myself included yeah because i'd seen other films of his before then but i think yeah. People connect to that. I mean, especially gay people connect to it. And, like, he's had queer themes in, sure. uh, you know, other films of his. Obviously, The Long Day Closes. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, Fran Hoffner in her, you know, uh, in Fran Mag talking about his passing, uh, 
put it in a way that I was very moved by that, you know, she described being at arm's length with his work, but eventually having to realize it was her arm, not his. Sure, sure. Um, That makes sense. And that's maybe how I had initially felt about House of Mirth, which I was probably too young for when I saw that in the theater. Sure. Um, But also A Quiet Passion, which were the works that I had seen before Benediction of his. And I I forget if I saw Long Day Closes before or after Benediction, but that's also one that really unlocked what he's doing with his work, too. And... Long Day Closes is a much more, like, directly autobiographical work, you know? What is it about? I've never seen it. But so for anybody listening who who doesn't know about it. uh, For anybody uh, listening who has not seen The Long Day Closes, uh, go and immediately watch that movie. You can watch it on Criterion Channel. It's under 90 minutes, so let me sell you that way. It's this very kind of poetic look at his just prepubescent youth. Uh, Terrence Davies' father died when he was young, and yeah. uh, his father was, I I guess, uh, you know... Uh, not a I, great guy, I, right? Not great. Yeah. And uh, he describes the time between his father's death and puberty, basically, as the happiest time of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a character that we understand to be a stand-in for Davies on the precipice of that, uh, realizing his love of cinema, growing up in Liverpool, mm-hmm. and also the first signs of queer awareness in mm-hmm. himself um, in a way that, you know, memories kind of flow in and out of each other in this very cathartic, poetic way that is incredibly moving. That I think, you know, if you were also a young queer person, you know, the scenes that deal with that right. uh, sure. will have a lot of resonance for you. Well, um, I thought, too, with, you know, that Benediction being his final movie and Benediction having such a sort of forthright, if, you know, complicated view of queerness and gay relationships and whatever. And from my understanding, at least, and again, I am no uh, Terrence Davies scholar, um, that he had a fairly complicated relationship with gay relationships in his own life. That he was out, of course, but that he never, I don't, I believe he had, he said that he had never really had a long-term gay relationship. He only ever had really one long-term relationship with anybody, and it was with a, a woman for a brief time. And he sort of absented himself. A period of intentionate celibacy as right. well. Right. Absented then. himself from the from sort of a, a sense of community. And so why, which is why I thought Benediction is so, feels like even more interesting as a movie that really deals very, intricately with queer community at a time when that wouldn't have seemed to have been possible. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it just seems like an incredibly uh, interesting person. I certainly was obviously, you know, aware and appreciative of him before his death, but I definitely feel like he's going to be one of those people who I, I learn even more about. I, you know, looking forward to seeing the long day closes and of time in the city, which was his documentary about, Liverpool. Which is one I have to catch up to, and I'll catch up to soon. Yeah. Um, we'll be talking about New York film critics, but they gave that, you know, their nonfiction prize, and that's one of the few, like, significant prizes that was ever given to his work, which mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things uh, in recent 
weeks since his passing that, you know, people have talked about that, you know, it's not just that, you know, he wasn't awarded much during his career, but also not recognized. And it's like, he definitely has the type of point of view and career that it's like, you do actually rely on critics and awards bodies to help contextualize and, uh, you know, recognize someone who isn't doing anything in the mainstream. Right. Um, And I think the movie we'll be talking about today is a great example of one that even though a lot of his uh, films were adapted from other works or were, you know, in the case of Benediction or Quiet Passion, directly about another mm-hmm. writer or another creator mm-hmm. but they remained incredibly personal yeah i think in the way that you described benediction um as a you know you know perhaps reflection on you know his feelings as uh an outsider perhaps a conscientious one mm-hmm. or uh you know living life intentionally in that way i think a quiet passion is very much the same too that's a movie that i'm especially eager to revisit now but knowing more about his life and his point of view and you know the way that he's been open about this i mean Mm -hmm. read any terrence davies interview and try to not fall in love with the man um and you know any interview you read with him, you come away with some type of knowledge about who he is. And I think Mm -hmm. he is so, you know, tried to say hard on his sleeve, but, you know, was very open about his experience and his view of the world and how he infused that into his work and how his work reflected it, even Mm -hmm. if it wasn't so directly autobiographical as something like Long Take Closes or Distant Voices Still Lives. Um, well, even something like, and we'll get into it with Deep Blue Sea, where it's something I, I definitely feel like I connected more to it this time watching it than I did when I initially saw it. I think the first time I saw it, I really respected it. I really was impressed by the performances. But I think this one, I think I am maybe more locked into what Davies is trying to do with the way he's telling the story, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. So yeah, yeah, and like even though this is adapted from a play, I'd be fascinated to see how close of an adaptation it is because it feels so distinctly his, and you know the way that flashback is used, montage not montage, but like uh, you know the flowing in and out of memory. Yes, uh, you know it's not a Terrence Davies movie if a room full of people aren't singing a song together, <laughs> right? And you get that um, twice in this movie into incredible effect, yeah. And I mean, like, that's half the runtime of Distant Voices Still Lives, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, just exquisite. Um, and the way that he can rend emotion out yeah. of that. But also, I think this movie's a great example of how he uses that to contextualize the people that he's depicting. Mm-hmm. In terms of whether it's the time that they live, collective communal trauma, because, Mm. you know, this is a movie about uh, a woman so devastated by love that she becomes suicidal, basically. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, repositions this story in a way that I bet 
is his own and is not from the play that's like this is a woman who has been through the trauma of it's world war ii right because you have the molly malone scene where everybody's in the underground right during the blitz yeah um and, and I just think well, he and does even that it closes really the whole the way. movie closes on this you know shot of this devastated po- portion of London that this this London of 1950 is still incredibly sort of pockmarked with the remnants of damage from from the Blitz from World War mm-hmm. II these soldiers who come back it's an interesting take we'll talk about it when we talk about Tom Hiddleston it's an interesting take on a character who is sort of forever changed by the war, but it's not quite the same where it's like, oh, he's haunted by everything as he's seen, he cries in the corner and whatever. It's this guy who was never more alive than when he was risking death as a Royal Air Force pilot. And so mm-hmm. can't quite, you know, life life back at home can't quite match the 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 him that he was back then yeah it's an it's an interesting take on that too and that i imagine comes from radigan's play but um davies certainly uh puts a puts some focus on it and he's so effective at doing it i mean benediction is very you know everything that we've said about how it talks about queer community in a way that does feel incredibly contemporary yes but he's also positioning that in a way that it's like you have to think of what is the unique trauma of that gay community that survived world war Mm one and how that also would have interacted with their gayness and you have Siegfried Sassoon incredibly played by Jack Loudon Mm -hmm. as this central character who's like well it's absolute it's absurd it's offensive to me that i lived and all of these other people didn't and how that affects his interaction with queer friendship but also romantic partners well and Um, and his queerness also gives frees him up to be able to speak about this generation of men with a more sort of open affection than than other poets who may have seen the need to be more reserved he has such mm a um just a a love for some of these men specifically like he like some of the ones who he knew and and was you know quite close with who who went out and i think him being able to access that part of his emotions you know mm-hmm. made him a more suitable poet for that generation and for that uh particular circumstance yeah uh, of course. I could talk about that movie forever. We're, we'll do that movie at some point, and I will just <laughs> It'll beam. be four hours long. <laughs> honestly, honestly. We'll have multiple guests. It'll be great. We will both separately cry. Yeah, seriously. Uh, seriously. I will try to not get emotional today talking about Mr. Davies. Mr. Davies. Who, just what a, a wonderful man. Um, yeah. Who uh, really made movies that I think... Are emo- you call a movie an emotional movie, and I think you have a certain type of expectation, but I think he made emotional movies in a very unique way, where mm-hmm. it's like he's expressing how he feels in the world through these movies, and 
you know, you get a real insight into a person of how they might feel isolated in their emotional experience of the world, how, uh, you know, expressing the nuance and tangents of those emotion um, in a way that I find very profound, but also one of a kind as a filmmaker, you know, you can see Davies's influence in other films, Mm -hmm. but I don't think anybody makes movies quite the way that he did. Um, Yeah. And like the long day closes, which is like, you talk about all these movies that are autobiographical, but also about the power of the cinema and, you know, cinema as memory. And I don't think anybody has made a movie like that that does all of those things that's as strong and as powerful as that movie yeah i can't wait to watch it i will uh certainly can't wait to hear what you think i hope i haven't oversold it for you or anyone (laughs) listening but uh what an incredible movie yeah all right. This is also a really great movie, too. This is maybe... I'm excited to talk about this movie. This is a very good it, one. It, it's interesting, because this is one of the ones where... I, 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 my, I didn't get to see this in theaters, but my perception of the response at the time was like, woof depressing, was what everybody was saying. And, it, yes. you know, it's about yes. a suicidal woman, but yes. I think, you yeah. know... Yeah, spend a whole day with a suicidal woman. You have to... You have to um yeah be able to uh understand the other layers of what he's doing here too because it's like this probably is one of his, one of his more you know rending <laughs> movies to watch listen uh, i would i would say the hardest to watch is sunset song because that I movie from the sunset jump song. is brutal yeah um but uh, you know people said similar things about the hours though about that it's depressing that it's slow that it's you know whatever the weeks and <laughs> um so i i i'm learning to sort of have my guard up about those reactions to to such films so. we we have unique patience for we this do movie. <laughs> we do um uh, should i talk about the the patreon and then we can get into yes uh let, let's take a brief moment to remind our listeners of what else we've got going on yeah this had oscar buzz turbulent brilliance is what we have uh, going on it's our five dollar a month patreon uh bonus episode uh, uh delivery system you'll get two bonus episodes per month from chris and me uh that uh, for for the low low cost of five dollars and and what kind of episodes will you be getting you ask well one of those episodes every month will be uh what we're calling exceptions which are films that fit the general vibe of a this had a, this had oscar buzz movie big expectations fell short of those expectations but still maybe managed to eke out a couple of oscar nominations in the end so uh along those lines we've already had episodes about nine and pleasantville rob marshall's nine i should say not the cartoon uh, uh future <laughs> future steampunk i feel like there was a steampunk angle to the animated nine steampunk right? aliens That's steampunk was, aliens right? sure I yeah never haven't I done that think. one no uh this is the rob marshall nine um be italian don't mind if i do this um, holiday season be italian that's right uh we talked about pleasantville for an episode we did a listener's choice episode on the lovely bones if that gives you a window into what our listeners have in store for us 
um, in the future. And then we also, uh, once a month, we'll give you an episode that we call an excursion episode, which are sort of off-format stuff. Um, we've got a whole bunch of different types of uh, episodes planned where we'll be talking about uh, EW fall movie preview issues. We can recap old award shows. I will say we have an upcoming episode that we haven't recorded yet on uh, the 1996 MTV Movie Awards. Is that the year we're doing? Coming soon. Um, very excited to do that. We just put up an episode uh, last week, uh, a Patreon exclusive mailbag that went up for a hefty two and a half hours. So no question, <laughs> uh, no question Mailbags turned away. To do. We're also going to be incorporating. Uh, soon listener call-in mini episodes yeah we'll have little minis on uh answering listener call-in questions so on the regular not a better time to join up if you want to call our little hotline and ask us any any uh anything your heart desires and we'll we'll answer it so truly we're having fun i think the garys who have all signed up are having fun. If you want to sign up for this at Oscar Buzz, Turbulent Brilliance, once again, $5 a month for two full-length episodes, plus a lot of these little bonuses, plus the ability to vote in polls, plus whatever stuff we, you know, have in store for the future. I would love to figure out a way to do some sort of a trivia thing that well that's that'll be a long-term goal but i'm gonna i'm really gonna work on it uh because i think that'd be very fun go to our patreon page at patreon.com slash this had oscar buzz sign up we will be happy to uh to welcome you into the fold we're having a good time and at this point you got a bunch of episodes waiting for you that's the thing binge through that's the thing peter out you know holidays are coming you yep. need something to listen to on a long drive or on an evening where your family's driving you crazy that's true We're the holidays are coming get ready we got you yeah yeah that long amtrak back home for thanksgiving before you have a very pieces of april uh, style uh, weekend i'm not trying to curse any of our listeners but flight delays oh god they're a thing they are they are a major part of our culture. Uh, <laughs> Flight delays listen, are a queer listen. culture. <laughs> uh, Spirit Airlines may not be there for you, but we are. So wow. Okay. Sign up. There we go. All right. All right, Chris. Back to the deep blue sea. Um, I've been I've been limbering up, getting ready to do a sixty second plot description, which is a deceptively difficult task because it's like oh. Oh, this movie takes place in a day. There's a lot of context. I think that's exactly the right word. I think there's a lot of railroad track that has to be laid down talking about this movie. But we'll see. We'll see how I do. You spend more time building the foundation of the house than the house itself. Well, it's better than the other way around. Let's get into it, though, so we can get into the movie. We can get more into Terrence Davies' work. We can get into Rachel Weisz's performance. Yes. Uh, Listeners. We are here talking about The Deep Blue Sea, written and directed by the one and only Terrence Davies, based on the Terrence Radigan play, starring the one and only Rachel Weisz, Tom Hiddleston, Simon Russell Beale, Harry Haddon Patton, and Anne Mitchell. The movie had a world premiere at TIFF 2011, opened in the UK that fall, but didn't open in the US until March 15th, 2012. Mr. Joseph Reed. Yes. Are you ready with a 60-second plot description? Yes, I am. 
All right, then your 60-second plot description of The Deep Blue Sea starts now. Rachel Weiss is Hester, a London woman in 1950 who was married to the good but dispassionate high court judge Sir William, played by Simon Russell Beale, only she left him to be with the gorgeous young Royal Air Force pilot Freddie, played by Tom Hiddleston, and Tom Hiddleston's incredible smile and Tom Hiddleston's stunning exposed hip. Freddie left the best of himself back in the war, though, and within several months of their whirlwind romance, Hester becomes all too aware that while her marriage to Sir William left her devoid of passion, her relationship with Freddie leaves her all too often neglected, not to mention financially insecure. Here's where I should mention... The whole movie takes place on the day that Hester's decided to kill herself, a task at which she fails, but which provides the jumping off point for all these gorgeously filmed flashbacks. Freddie finds out about the suicide attempt and absolutely flips his lid in no small part to Hester's suicide note, in which she essentially says, seriously, don't think that I killed myself just because you forgot my birthday, which makes him think she definitely tried to kill herself because he forgot her birthday and he's furious at her. By the end of this sad gray London day, Freddie tells Hester that he's accepted a job as a test pilot in Brazil and he's leaving her. They spend one last night together and then he leaves, and while you think he's just going to... You think she's just going to get right back to the business of gassing herself to death. Hester instead lights a fire and stares out her window into whatever is coming next to the end. Eight seconds over. Bye bye. All right. That's good for me. That's good for me. Did I leave anything out? I guess I suppose the the landlady at Freddie's apartment who is caring for her ailing husband, who is so awesome in her like short scenes. The scene in the underground is such a like yes, in the scene of the underground midpoint showcase. Yes, that you know, how do you incorporate that in exactly? I, I don't really we'll know how it. you incorporate the you know flashbacks or memories into yeah. the plot, but like they are so significant to the experience of watching this movie. Before we talk about the plot, can we talk about the way this movie is filmed in and the the sort of I guess it's exposure. By that, you mean gorgeously? <laughs> well, yes, gorgeously, but like that, I think it's set to a, I don't know cameras. I wish I did, guys. Like, honestly, I'd, but you know what I mean? Where like there, it's a little overexposed maybe or something where things feel, everything feels like it's in this sort of haze of, um, and I imagine it's, you know, uh, this sort of gassy, you know what I mean? Gassy haze. The movie was shot by Florian Hoffmeister, who uh, was just nominated last year for Tar. There we go. Um, but I don't know. You are you are maybe smarter than me about that. But but how would you I'm categorize? <laughs> it's sort of misty. Like things sort of look a little misty always, and a little. Um, the aesthetics of this movie soft. are the type of thing that somebody uh, somebody uh, too eager to maybe not get this movie would roll their eyes at. Sure. That is actually incredibly effective yes, to I think the so. slipperiness yes. of this movie's relationship to the past and the present. Um, it sometimes looks like you're looking in at this movie through a sort of shallow pool, shallow tide pool or something like that, that you're sort of like looking into the memories of it. Right. And even mm-hmm. the stuff that takes place in like the current day, this day that she tried to kill herself. Um, it all feels, I think you're right. Slippery and sort of um, it's not dreamlike. It's not that, but it's like, um, like life through a veil a little bit. You know what I mean? Like a fog. And, yeah, yeah. 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 A little bit. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautifully filmed. Um, and a really wonderful showcase for these three, especially, I think all those side characters, Harry Hunt Patton and, and Ann Mitchell and whatnot are all very good. But I think these three central performances of Rachel Weiss, Tom Hiddleston, Simon Russell Beale are so 
incredible. I was good. really struck on this rewatch by how much I actually love Simon Russell Beale's performance. Oh in my this movie. god! This is probably him in Benediction too, because he's in oh. that, and he has like two scenes where he's spectacular, and it's like you'll want one more scene with the guy, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, loves uh, people i think most uh, he's you know uh, also i believe a theater actor but he's a major uh, theater actor is the thing he's like yes and um i think it as far as film goes the most praise he's gotten is for death of stalin a movie that i think is tremendous and fine oh, but like he does get a real we disagree that on that movie. one i love that movie and i think he's tremendous um, he's he's great, yeah. The yeah. thing about Simon Russell Beale, this was definitely the first movie I sort of noticed him in, and I was like, oh, I wonder how many movies I, I sort of ignored him in. And it's he hadn't made very many movies before this. He was really mm-hmm. very much a theater actor. He was um, very – he worked a lot with Sam Mendes when Sam Mendes was um, – uh, very major in London theater. Um, he's, he's essentially always doing something at the National Theater. He's he got a Tony Award recently for, um, was it the Lehman trilogy or was it uh, it was the Lehman trilogy, right? Um, I for, uh, anything uh, yeah COVID era or sure, like sure, just sure, before sure. just after with Tonys is a soup to me. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Hold on. Tony Awards, yes, he won in 2022 Best Actor in a Play for the Lehman Trilogy, so there's that. Um, Great actor. Uh, Also an openly gay actor. Openly gay, we love. Um, But yeah, so The Deep Blue Sea 2011 is sort of, he is when he sort of starts appearing in movies after, he had been in Orlando, he had been in uh, the the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, and then he hadn't really done major movies for a very long time, and then the the Deep Blue Sea and My Week with Marilyn in the same year. He's the Baker's father in Into the Woods, which I totally did not make note of um, when I saw Into the Woods. Um, he's in another Rachel Vice movie in 2017, uh, My Cousin Rachel, the one that was directed by Roger Michel. One of the sort mm-hmm. of last Roger Michel movies. That was the same year he did The Death of Stalin. That all actually, though, happens after he does a couple seasons on Penny Dreadful. Did you ever watch Penny Dreadful? I know I've asked you this before. I didn't, but I want to catch up to He's it Mr. Because... Lyle in Penny Dreadful. He's yeah. great. He's so good. Um, uh, he has since been in Mary Queen of Scots and uh, Operation Finale and, uh, of course, Benediction. I loved, loved, loved him last year in The Outfit, which was the Mark Rylance movie, where... Um, oh, yeah! He's great in that. I did the not bad love guy. that movie, he's but I love him. He's the Chicago gangster in this. <laughs> and the second he steps into on screen, and I did not know he was going to be in this movie, that he sort of, like, steps through the door in this, like, very, like, auspicious entrance, and I almost, like, hooted and hollered out loud, because I was so, so, so happy <laughs> that he was there. I genuinely love this guy. Um, this year, 2023, he is in a movie. Has this come out yet? It was a can, uh, Firebrand. This was, oh, no, this was it the movie have about US distribution. This was the movie about Catherine Parr. This played at Cannes. This was Alicia Vikander, mm-hmm. Jude Law. Jude Law is Henry VIII. I'm so, I know it did not, I don't think it got very good reviews. It did not. But I said it was so pretty ex- boring. But when they described oh. Jude Law in this movie, how he's like, how am I not going to see this? How am yeah, I not? Yeah. How am I not? You know what I mean? So, um, kind of excited for that one. Um, 
Okay, so, but yeah, so uh, I leave it to me to lead with Simon Russell Beale, but I just had to say, because I genuinely do um, <laughs> adore that man, and um, so He's excited. wonderful in this movie. Yes. Apparently he's going to be in House of the Dragon season two. Okay, I'm into that. I gotta watch I that show anyway. I won't be watching him in that, but, you know. I've gotta watch it anyway, so good for me. <laughs> More for me. That's great. Um, how did you feel about Hiddleston in this? Well, we'll lead up to Rachel Weisz. We'll, we'll sort of Okay, so we've talked about Hiddleston. Maybe, I mean, the most we talked about Hiddleston is way, way back in the uh, podcast, the early episodes when we had Air Command It's on only our second with, Hiddleston um, episode, yeah. I saw the light. Yep. He's really not someone who has ever registered for me in the way that he registers for other people. Yeah. But, you know, when this movie debuted, that's obvi- it's obviously his big year, and I'd forgotten yeah. how much he was in at once. It's a, it's um, an insane year, 2011, for Tom Hiddleston. But the thing about Hiddleston, with the exception of Night Manager, is his career has been so consumed by Marvel, there hasn't been many other things that he's been in where he's not playing Loki. So that's probably why. But I do think he's very good in this. But you look at this he's year, in less 20- of the movie than you think he'll be. 2011, that is true. But like you look at his 2011, if we count this as like a 2011 debut, at least, if you were at the, the festivals or you lived in England, it's the, it's the Deep Blue Sea, it's War Horse, which I think he's tremendous in. And there is a shot of him that, to, to me, unlocks the whole movie. And... It's just his face, but like it really is a breathtaking face when you look at that shot of him <laughs> in Warhorse. Um, that was the one. Were we talking about this, or was I listening to this on another podcast? Where um, I think I was listening to it on another podcast or somewhere where they talked uh, it's about. It's very possible that we've had whatever conversation you're about to launch us into because you love Warhorse, you defend Warhorse. Yeah, but this is something I learned recently where that that Spielberg in directing Hiddleston for that scene, where essentially it's they're riding into battle and it's it's a tight sort of like it moves in right on his face as he's and it was something to the effect of Spielberg telling him um oh shit, I'm gonna get it wrong, so I don't want to but essentially Spielberg directing him to essentially just like when the shot begins, you're this age, and when the shot ends, you're a different. You've you've aged like significantly, or something like that. Oh my god, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm so mad. Um, uh, but it's 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 a it really like it pinpoints how important that shot is to the rest of that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also in Midnight in Paris this year, a movie that I don't like, but I love him in it. He plays F. Scott Fitzgerald. I think he's great. And then I literally purely by accident, Chris. Uh, Thor was on television. The first Thor was on television yesterday. And so I watched it. It's it's of the of and you know I'm a Marvel fan, but like of the Marvel movies, it's never really one I really revisit, partially because Thor's beard. You don't like the Thor movies. I I like the Thor movies actually. I don't like the Taika Waititi movies. So it's it's that. But like the first two, like Thor is a character I really like. Thor: The Dark World I really defend. But the thing about watching the first one is, I was I was really reminded how much I walked out of that movie and was like, Tom Hiddleston's a fucking star. Like he genuinely <laughs> pops off through that movie so so well. And the very next year, they make him the main villain of the Avengers, which is like the biggest movie, you know, uh, at that point. And mm-hmm. it was sort of off to the races. But like. 
he does for I, I take your point in that like he, his career has been sort of swallowed up by Loki. That's not not true. But he does manage to do movies like Only Lovers Left Alive and Crimson Love that Peak. movie. Love that movie. And He's not what I'm walking away from that movie talking about though. Only Lovers Left Alive? Personally. I'm talking about him and Tilda. It's not like I'm not talking, you know what I mean? It's like it's not like I'm only talking about Tilda. In that Listen, movie. Hiddleston uh definitely put himself out there as uh an actor who will uh get naked for a movie. It works for him. You it mentioned works for me. his it works for him. Uh, hips in this That movie. shot of the two of them from above where it's just like they're they're not exposed but you see every like non uh a verboten part of their body and it's just like side butt and side boobs and hips and and legs and it's so sexy exquisite exquisite terrence davies for a man who i'm not sure if there's other sex scenes in his other work there's interesting there might be nudity in neon bible if i remember correctly i've only seen that movie once but like and for his own complicated you yeah. know relationship with sex that he's talked about yeah the man can shoot a sex scene yeah 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 and then you're right you're right to mention the night manager which was a great mini series if it's i don't know where it would be available if it's available but like he's great Hugh Laurie is great Olivia Coleman is great Tom Hollander fucking rules he's such a bitch in that movie elizabeth debicki <laughs> is great it's a john le carré um adaptation and i will say for as much as i i think the cooling of marvel over the last few years has been justified and warranted i think the projects have seen a general if not outright downturn, like a loss of a center over the last few years in a way that has been very noticeable. I will say that Loki, the show, has thus far been an exception to that. I think Loki sort of stands on its own very well, um, surprisingly enough. And good for him. I think he is, is a big part of that reason. He was also in a miniseries last year that I didn't see, but I wonder, I don't think you did either, but uh, called The Essex Serpent with him and Claire Danes. Do you remember hearing about this? I did not. It was uh, Apple TV+, Plus, which is probably why. Um, but I did remember hearing some people talking about it and and saying that it was good. It's him, Claire Danes, um, Frank Delane, Clemence Posey. It's an interesting cast. I will probably not Clemence catch up to Posey, it. Because... Uh, freed from... Uh, Christopher Nolan's tenant, where her sole job is to explain, she is basically Jeremy Strong in Serenity. She might as well have been named the rules. Yeah. Um, or but uh, she's also the one rules. who's just like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. No, she's literally like, don't think about it, feel it, and yep. it's like, okay, it's good advice, Clemence. Got it, Thank Nolan. You. Thank you. All right, everybody, put down that Tom Hiddleston you have in your hand i don't know what what would somebody what would somebody have to uh of the many time uh, stop grabbing his side thigh his beautiful what? side thigh absolutely everybody put your tom hiddleston side thighs down <laughs> knives knives down quickly. utensils down uh uh Knives are out. I don't know. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Padma. Padma in front of all of the chefs. Today, your challenge is you have to cook Tom Hiddleston three ways. <laughs> you will have full access to our pantry provided by Glad, the Glad family of products. 
Um, all right. Anyway, we are taking a break to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, which is uh, ramping up. As you are listening to this, we you we are either on the eve of Gotham Award nominations or they've just happened, depending on when in your week you uh, settle down to this podcast. But we'll have some sweet, sweet awards points. I kind of have no way of of guessing what the Gothams will go for, but like. I imagine past lives is going to do quite well, right? Like I feel like the like in terms of the indie awards this year, I feel like that's Being a pretty that big one. That it is somewhat the East Coast contingent of independent film typically. Yeah. A24 stands to do decently well as they often do there. You think there are you think the East Coast bias has an A24 bias whereas the West Coast indie bias is more they towards They are a New York City company. They are a New York City company. This is true. Anyway, it's a fool's Not errand. That they don't do well at the Independent Spirit Awards, but right. Um anyway, regardless, I'll be interested to see what they go for, especially because the two big time Awards contenders at the moment, well, the three of them actually, are all studio stuff, right? Killers of the Flower Moon and, and Oppenheimer and Barbie. So, yes. in- Also, as you're listening, you're probably – anybody who drafted Killers of the Flower Moon is racking in their Killers of the Flower Moon dollars, well, and yet they're not getting those number one uh, – Well, so this is what I wanted points. to talk about, Chris, because you sort of – you you – Gave me my inspiration for my newsletter topic last week when we talked about when you when you mentioned your prediction that the Eras Tour would end up being the highest grossing movie from now through the end of the year, and I was like, "Huh, I hadn't really thought of it that way." I am famously bad at this at this at box <laughs> office stuff. I feel like you have a better sense of. I think you have it keep has- closer tabs on. The way movies are tracking, and you always, you're, I, I feel like in our in our chats, you're always the one who's like, "Well, such and such is going to make such and such because that's how it's tracking." And I'm like, I didn't read that. I do like, pay attention to <clears throat> tracking. Tracking is not an infallible, no, especially in recent years, is not an infallible resource. However, it's a good general guide. Well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do think that Taylor Swift has a good shot. At yeah. Uh, achieving that well particularly Uh, because a lot of the big sort of tentpole style movies that are waiting between now and the end of the year are dealing with sort of trends that are going in the wrong direction for what they are be they superhero movies or animated movies. movies um a lot of uh, unknowable, uh, like unknowable X factors, which I think is like Wonka has like eight billion unknowable X factors, as does something like Five Nights at Freddy's. Which before talking to you, I had no idea that that was like uh, uh, tracking to be like a fifty million dollar right. And then you have something like The Hunger Games, which is like we have no idea how The Hunger Games is going to perform without Jennifer Lawrence. We've never seen that before. So like, um, I want to go through it sort of like step by step. But I want you, you, we sort of entered this with Killers of the Flower Moon. What do you think? awaits for this movie box office wise because it is a long movie and long movies tend to have that like cap on how much money they can make anyway and like because they have fewer show times during the day and and in this sort of post-pandemic world i'm always nervous for like an auteur director's first post-pandemic movie where like we could find out that like people have just like decided to stop seeing a certain kind of movie after the pandemic you know what i mean and sure 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 well it, it is worth noting 
that Martin Scorsese's highest grossing movie still remains at The Departed at something like, I think, $132 million. Right, that and Shutter Island are sort of like the, the two tippy tops. I think Shutter yeah. Island is like 128 Something like that. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, I don't think that its opening box office weekend is going to tell its full life. Sure. Especially, I think, with the length of that movie and the, you know... Uh, what the rest of the season looks like, uh, the uh, intense love for that movie, and I think probably still a lot of discussion points that are going to be happening about that movie now that people have seen it. I worry Uh, about that. That movie has legs, I think. I've been seeing troubling signs that there is discourse waiting for this movie, and I don't love that. I think the movie answers the discourse, so I think I think there is. I think more trusting so people to discussion to be had about movies, how things are told. I think uh, I I don't think it's to this movie's detriment, but there is a, there is conversation to be had, and I don't think that this is a movie that just you know sits there on the screen and is great. I think this is a movie that will get people talking. Um, after two weeks of watching social media digest the situation in Israel and Palestine, are you really confident that that people are up to uh, handling the finer nuances of what Martin Scorsese is doing in Killers of the Flower Moon? Are you Maybe willing? Are you willing I to advance am that? Overly optimistic. Maybe <laughs> I am uh, less and less online anymore. Good for but, you. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that this is a movie that people will continue to talk about for a while, and I think this movie has potential legs as far as I hope so. Is concerned, I hope that I don't think that the end of its life is its first. Weekend. The pessimist in me has a voice in the back of my head saying there is no such thing as legs at the box office anymore. That that theatrical windows have gotten shorter and shorter. That that nothing that the that the oscars matter things like awards and oscars matter less for box office and i worry that like after four weeks of like performing okay that they're just going to be like well you'll be on streaming next week and we'll try and recoup that way and i would also add that four of the five top grossing scorsese movies are all leonardo dicaprio movies okay that's a good that's a good Um, data point i like that all right I think especially this is a movie we talk about older audiences that are just like not going to the movies anymore. But I do right. think that this will get that audience out of the house and go see the movie. Sure. Um, but but you do not expect it. Necessarily go right. You, you're you're very much as am I expecting Taylor Swift to take top, top space at the box office once again. That's uh, at least as of recording on Friday night. Yeah. Right now, this conversation we are having, uh, she is looking to definitely yeah. take the. Does not surprise me. So, talk to me about Five Nights at Freddy's. A thing I was not aware of. I don't know video games from shit. So, like, I'm not super aware of it either. It's. I think it's less video game, more online game that has a super <laughs> cult following. Um, I I make no difference or distinction. Fifty million dollars yeah. for opening week. Yeah, which is like kind of amazing. Even though I also I was talking to was it, maybe it might have been you about this at at TIFF. I just remember like ascending the escalator, being like Five Nights at Freddy's. That trailer looks weird. I'm into the idea of like a haunted Chuck E. Cheese. And then whether it was you or whoever I was talking to was just like, yeah, but the creator of that like is a hardcore Trump supporter or whatever. And it's like, God damn it. So, but I guess <laughs> the movie doesn't have anything to do with this person. So, and I don't know whether like the concept of a haunted Chuck E. Cheese is inherently mega in any way. So, like maybe I think we're fine. I think. 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm interested. I hope Josh Hutcherson, I like the irony of Josh Hutcherson having a big box office hit in the same vicinity as this Hunger Games cash-in movie. Where he's playing like a dad? I mean, Five Nights at Freddy's could open bigger than this Hunger Games movie. That's Um, maybe the biggest, that and Wonka, I think, are the two biggest question marks. But before we get to Hunger Games... Uh, we I want to talk about the Marvels, which is tracking very low. Like the advance word on this, and whether this is Marvel trying to like lower expectations or whatever, um, it's looking to track pretty low, which is too bad because it's not like I liked Captain Marvel as very much, but that trailer looked fun. I like the idea of this sort of like triple team up, you know, superheroes thing. I am in general a fan of Marvel who has not been, you know, I've not been blind to the sort of downturn in quality of the last, many of the last several movies. Although I say that the last Guardians of the Galaxy movie was the only one I really loved. (laughs) So Mm. uh, maybe don't go by me, but I'll be bummed if the Marvels is the movie that sort of like bears the brunt of like the worst ever opening. Like it's tracking worse than Eternals or Quantumania at this point, which is, I don't know, too bad. Granted, Quantum Mania opened more than $100 million, so... Right, but, but like, relative, but, like, success in this arena is measured, yeah, you know, it, relatively. Yeah, it immediately died after that. Yeah. You know, there's been some interesting things that have, uh, that have been pointed out uh, in regards to the Marvel's tracking, aside from the fact that, like, they really haven't begun the promotional campaign for that movie, especially yeah. in the way that Marvel movies usually do. Like, the promotional campaign for their movies start, like, three months in advance. Yeah. I think one thing that I haven't seen pointed out is, like, I do think that this maybe is the first real test of the TV show's uh, in terms of consciousness, because, like... Because Tiana uh, Paris and... and uh, uh, What's her face? The from yeah of this threesome, two of those characters are ones that Ms. are introduced yeah. through the TV shows and not through the movies. Right, right. So that's an interesting question mark. But indeed, we'll see. And I imagine it doesn't really bode well because I I'm dubious as to how many people watched. Certainly, Ms. Marvel. A lot of people were paying attention to WandaVision. Um, but I'm not sure how much Monica was. You know prominent in that i liked her very much on that show but anyway i do love tiana paris though i did not watch wandavision wandavision was good i think of all that i know uh knowing your your mcu resistance i still think feel like that show would have had the best chance to have hooked you but regardless i've learned to to pick my battles with you um hunger games ballad of songbirds <laughs> among and many snakes. things yeah ballad of songbirds and snakes i'm I'm not rooting for this movie to fail. I just don't know why people would be excited about seeing this. And I'm willing to be proven wrong. And maybe people are just like, we're much more into the Hunger Games than I thought. Maybe like the concept is kind of bulletproof. But like without Jennifer Lawrence, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I also. I've been revisiting the movies. I have one left to go. What is, what, is, what like, are your thoughts? What is the... I don't want to go back to this world <laughs> for more. Like, it's interesting to rewatch these movies that we cared a lot about at the time. But, like, with diminishing returns. Like, by the by the end of Mockingjay Part 2, I feel like enthusiasm had really severely waned. Well, because that series 
ended as The Force Awakens was opening. Yeah. So, like, yeah. as The Force Awakens kind of, like, ate everything's lunch, it really ate that finale's lunch. Also, like, that that third book came out, if not after the first Hunger Games movie came out, like, around that time. And, like, people didn't like the book either. You know what I mean? Like, people... I don't know. I don't know. So, I don't know. Maybe people are into what's what twink snow is doing what rachel ziegler is doing like I twink don't know. snow who previously if we haven't invoked it on this episode enough uh the episode that this is being dropped into i have only seen in benediction but he is wonderful in benediction but he's also very very gay who is he in benediction so, is he the the yes. bitchy one I mean the bitchy one, well, is Jeremy Irvine. Um, no, 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 no. I mean like the fun bitchy one. Um, I too believe, but uh, I'm bad at recognizing. Well, it's because he has bleach blonde curly hair in uh, the ballad of what the fuck, and also that. Um, <laughs> and he's like you know, period specific brunette, right? In Benediction, can I say? Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but like I do depend on Wikipedia for refreshing my memory on plot descriptions. There is no plot description section for Benediction right now. And there's a lot of characters in Benediction. And sometimes I need to go and remind myself which Brit played whom. And Wikipedia is not helping me. So what I'm saying is... Jack Loudon collectively break each other's hearts. Okay, that's sort of... In the third act of the movie. Okay, that's sort of who I was thinking. Okay. Um, yeah, he was wonderful in that movie. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm gonna have to see the ballad of fucknuts and whatnot. Um, I suppose. Um, I also don't like Rachel Ziegler, but that's a conversation for another day. Anyway, um, listen, the internet is very mean to that that's, young woman. This is, this is my we thing. Got, we can't talk about it. Literally, I am going on like my third or fourth project of like, we can't get into it. I can't side against this girl who's, like, the enemy of, like, the worst people in the world or whatever. I just think she's, like, an annoying Zoomer. And, like, that's sort of, like, she's, like, Gen Z in a way that annoys me. Um, but that's she, not the same as being, like... stage door manner-esque in I don't way. mind. Like, I don't... You know, I usually don't mind that vibe. I usually don't mind that vibe. With her, it annoys me. But... I'm not like, she shouldn't play Snow White because Snow White is canonically Aryan or whatever. Like, fuck off. So Exactly. All right. Last couple of movies and then we'll get out of here. Speaking of Snow White, Disney's Wish. Okay. Which is just beginning its promotional campaign. I will say, you mentioned the, like, downturn in the box office. People don't talk about this part as much. Like, Disney and Pixar are, like, floundering at the box office these days. Elemental, which, like, it was a big deal that, like, it opened so badly, nobody really talked about that movie did, like, a five-time multiplier in terms of its box office. It made $150 million, which, like, for a movie that opened under 30, that's actually really good. That movie had legs. I think it's just that their movies stick around in theaters for a long time, but they're not these, like, yeah. box office behemoths post-pandemic yeah. right out of the gate. But I do because think Because Disney conditioned their, their audience to be able to wait for Disney+, Plus, like a bunch of fucking morons. Yeah, and at this point, like, 
they might still wait for Disney Plus, but yeah. I think because they've, you know, their contracts or whatever keep them in physical theaters, people eventually don't have things to take their kids to see and they do catch up to these movies. But like, yeah. Elemental is also awful. Um, and Wish. I haven't seen Elemental yet. Um, I, I, people, I, I've talked to a few people and they were like, wow, you really hated that. I was like, yeah, it's really, it's the bargain bin of the bargain bin for Pixar, uh, for me. Um, I've seen people sort of like come around the other end of it recently and be like, this movie's not as bad as people were saying. So like, that's interesting to me. What I will say is, yes, all of the people are different, uh, elements and it's this really crunchy metaphor for racism. Yes. But because everybody is elements, there is a whole, like, race of people that are gas people <laughs> in the movie. They are all farts. Like, there are, there's a whole group of people in Elemental that are fart people. And what, are, what race are they coded? I don't. I don't really think it's that. Okay. It's just like okay, it's good. so overly good. broad of a race. I would feel very bad if they were like, you know, French or fart hell. people or something like that. Like I wouldn't. It's so crunchy. Um, I mean, like, granted, I say that it's crunchy, but it's more so like the metaphor is meant for like under ten years old. So it's sure. Like, I am not the intended audience for Elemental. Sure. Can I also mention, though, while we're on the topic of animation, though, the the other animated movie that I mentioned in my article is Migration, which is the one about, like, the the ducks flying south or whatever, and Aquafina is a sure. tough-talking pigeon that they encounter in New York City or whatever. But, like, Migration is an Illumination uh, animation project, which is essentially, like... Minions. Think Minions when you think Illumination, right? And now Mario. Well, I was going to say, they're the only ones who are, like, exceeding expectations at the box office in the animation realm, right? Pixar's floundering, Disney is floundering, and, like, Super Mario Brothers and fucking Minions Rise of Gru are, like, two, like, genuine animated hits of the post-pandemic era. So I wouldn't be shocked if Migration does maybe better than we're thinking, even though it's just a movie about a bunch of ducks. Um. All right, last thing. We talked about it a little bit last time. Wonka. What? What's this movie going to be? I want I want you and I both to like make a claim and be like is Wonka going to be a bomb or a hit? Or listen, Wonka is a hit for me using the little mini clip from the trailer <clears throat> of Timmy Chalamet saying, "Here we go, mama." Here we go, mama. Here we go, mama. Yeah. Um uh it looks like something I will not see. Oh, I'm um, definitely seeing this. I... I'm definitely seeing it. Timmy looks so weird, man. I'm into it. I'm a fan. Um, I'm sorry. I'm a Timmy Chalamet fan. It I'm not going to well deny could it. very make money. I don't think that... <sighs> the rest of the Christmas window is very interesting. Aquaman, I think, is equally primed to do... Well, bad. as bad as the MCU movies have gone, the DC movies have done worse somehow. Right. So, however, the original, the first Aquaman people liked it. Also, had yeah. that patina of patina of uh, failure in yes. advance, and it did very well. Um, I think the color purple has potential to surprise, even though early word on it God, is not. Talk about a genre there. that has been flopping at the movies. Musicals have just been tanking. 
But when you think of musicals in the Christmas window, they do have long legs and make money. But when... Well, when you're not cats. I was going to say, like, when was the last time that that was true? Like, Les Mis? Uh, Les Mis did it. Dreamgirls did it. It's Um, a different world. You know what I mean? It's a different world now. I don't know. We will see. I was so burned on In the Heights bombing that, like, I, I have no more faith in anything anymore. And West Wonka Side Story is also a musical. They don't want you to know that, but it is. West Side Story also opened in the Christmas window, and that didn't do it. So, yeah. All right, all right. This is a long twenty-minute conversation about box office. Well, How's everybody we're doing giving, on your box? We're giving it all out of our system because here's a, I cannot wait until I can talk about awards points instead of box office points because that's the thing I'm good at. This is why I wanted to talk to you about this though. Right. The point is, we I, also didn't mention Beyonce. There should be box office points. Well, because Beyonce, Beyonce is not available not for a, the pool, so not oh, not our problem. Never mind, yeah, never mind. not our problem. She announced too late. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Beyonce. If you wanted to be part of the pool, you should have announced earlier, and that's all there is to it. Um, She's going to win the documentary Oscar. Stop it. No one's going to get those points. No concert movies don't win documentary Oscars. That's they don't foolishness. They don't. Foolishness. But... All right. If you want to go play the Vulture Movies Fantasy League and earn, uh, see how your box office points are doing for your various movies, go to vulture.com slash movies dash league. You can check out and see how uh, your team is doing, how your friends are doing. You can filter by league. If you're in the All of Us Gary's League, you can see. I want to go see who, uh, not All of Us Gays, our rival league, All of Us Gary's, the our current league of five people, the current leader, as I am looking at this, and this will probably change by the time you're listening to it because the, we'll have updated with the new weekend. But Team Nicole Kidman's divorce photos, which God bless you. Great team name. Great team name. Uh, is currently riding those points from Exorcist Believer and Taylor Swift and the creator. So. Uh, and the and Nicole Kidman's divorce photos has Killers of the Flower Moon, so it'll be getting even more box office points. So uh, 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 shout out, shout out to to you for your current lead in the All of Us Gary's pool. There's a bunch of people who are currently 27 points behind Nicole Kidman's divorce paper, uh, divorce photos. Sorry, Nicole Kidman's divorce photos, where she is celebrating Nicole Kidman's divorce papers. Um, <laughs> So congratulations to you, and we hope uh, for your continued success. Chris, what else do we have to say about our Garys? Apologies to anybody who... Well, not apologies. This is just your bad... You you just have bad luck. If you drafted the bike riders... Yeah. It's been indefinitely moved. It's still... We're going to assume that means 2024 at well, this point. Well, they're sort of holding out... It, the longer we go without an agreement between SAG-AFTRA and the studios, the more likely it is that the bike riders... We'll move to 2024. Also, it did not make an impression when it premiered at Venice. Yeah, I don't think you're getting awards points anyways. It, it premiered at Telluride. At Telluride. Okay. Um, listen, we both love Jeff Nichols. We are... I'm excited to see this movie regardless, but I don't think it's uh, it's going to make an impression award season-wise. So 2024, even if you, if you drafted the bike rider... You might not have had a whole lot of success anyway, so I guess feel okay about it that way. Also, before we stop, shout out Clay Keller, former guest and our good friend, who is currently in the co-lead on the podcast, uh, in the Podcasters League, currently with uh, with his team tied with Andrew Jupin of We Hate Movies. So go Clay. We love uh, friends of the show doing well in the Movie Fantasy League. All right. Anything else to say before we send our listeners 
back Let's into back the the waiting embrace of uh, of Rachel Weiss and the cold, uh, supportive, financially supportive uh, uh, presence of Simon Russell Beale. All right. Let's do it. All right, you lead the discussion on Rachel Weisz because she's she's obviously the one who gets the most attention from this movie. She gets a New York Film Critics Circle prize. She's Globe in the Oscar conversation, although we'll, we'll talk about there. yeah. Uh, first and foremost, I was so shocked that we've done so few Rachel Weisz movies. It's only two, right? The well, hold on. So we should definitely talk about her career yes we should uh i mean we just talked about lovely bones over on the patreon right so it makes it seem like it's more but it's, it makes it seem like it's even more because there's really not a lot of movies those don't count towards uh um six timers though right uh and i genuinely couldn't remember if we talked about light between oceans or not it's not conceivable. yet not yet but we have um, to we have to Sure, sure. We've always talked about talking about other sunshine. Um, Which we also should do at some point, other sunshine. Yeah, just to say that we've seen that movie. I will say, before we get into her filmography, I just did want to sort of stray mention, all three of these leads all come from, if not outright posh uh, beginnings, but like Rachel Weisz and Tom Hiddleston both went to Cambridge, and uh, Tom Hiddleston... Uh, went to like Eton uh, as a young child and sort of like went to all these sort of like boarding school prep schools. Simon Russell Beale's father was the Surgeon General in the British Armed Forces. Like he was born in Malaysia. Like he's sort of um, uh, from that. Rachel Weiss's parents were both immigrants from Hungary and Austria. Um, but when she uh, came to England, sort of you know grew up in London was a model at a young age, went to Cambridge. So, like, it's it's interesting that they all sort of are in these kind of somewhat similar uh, kind of posh circles uh, before, yeah. before this movie. Anyway, go on. We talked about her on our My Blueberry Nights episode. Right. Which, if I remember her performance in that movie, is Not my kind fave. of goofy. Not my fave. Not my fave. Um, she's, uh, she's going for it. She's um, an actress who... I remember it took me a while to sort of put her in the realm of great actress versus like, oh, she's like someone who was in Chain Reaction and The Mummy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I sort of chalked her up as sort of just like a... a I think she's one of our greats. Um, I think she is, but it took me a while to sort of like click my mind into that realm for her. And it was probably not until Enemy at the Gates, maybe? That it did it for me? Really? Maybe. Enemy at the Gates? I never saw Stealing Beauty. I never saw... I never saw that either. Um, I never saw Other Sunshine. What would it have been for you that, that would have unlocked it for you? Aside from the... the I mean, I did love that Mummy movie when it came out. And yeah. loved her. But I don't think I really thought of her... Aside from The Mummy and how fun she is in that movie, she's one of the love interests in About a Boy. Yeah, she's great in that. Shortly after that. Yeah. Um, I actually saw The Shape of Things in theaters. Me too. Um, Me too. Both of us, you know, contributed to what is probably that movie's maybe $50,000 box office gross. 
Um, if it's any more than that, how dare genuinely... you? It's eight hundred and twenty-six thousand dollars. <laughs> I'd in say O three money. I'd look into um, whether that's worldwide or domestic, but I can't imagine they opened this thing anywhere but the United States. I mean, so, yeah, um, yeah. I definitely saw it in theaters. After that point, you know, she's in kind of these B tier thrillers like Confidence and Runaway Jury. Runaway Jury, she's... though, they have her going toe to toe with Gene Hackman a lot in that movie. Like that's not an easy assignment. Like she kind of holds up to some right. Um, right. And I loved her in Constantine. I mean, Constantine. Constantine, for a movie that's not very satisfying, still rules. Rules. Like, I think it rules. And maybe 50% of that is due to Tilda Swinton. I think she's great, but I also think Keanu's great. I think, I mean, I think fucking Gavin Rossdale's great in that movie. Like, what a great cast. <laughs> I love that movie so much. Francis Lawrence's best moment in film, Constantine. Constantine is the year also of her Oscar win for The Constant Gardener. Mm-hmm. She wins that Oscar in a very competitive, I would say, competitive year. I think very. the batting average of that she, supporting actress line. But she high. wins everything. You know yes. what I mean? Like, it's a very competitive year, but she ends up, like, sweeping the table. Once. And I think that's because that was a very well-regarded movie, generally. Yeah. yeah. And, I think it's a very you good know, movie. She got out early. Amy Adams also got out early. Mm-hmm. Um yep let me and it's a big role it's a big it's a prominent role you know what i mean like it's yeah yeah she's up against like michelle williams in brokeback mountain francis mcdormand in north country which are both like a lot smaller roles Catherine keener in capote also a smaller role um so it really was kind of like her and amy adams did she miss sag or something because she was campaigned as lead there maybe Maybe. I feel like that's a thing. I just can't remember where. Let I'll me look, look it that up. I'll look it up. You keep talking about Rachel. Uh, she's incredible in that movie. Um, a movie that I think otherwise is somewhat forgotten except for her performance. Um, and I think that's the moment when we all kind of really realized what she could do. But then she kind of doesn't get to make good on that for somewhat of a while. Her next movie is The Fountain, where she obviously meets and marries Darren Aronofsky, then goes on to the not-well-liked Wong Kar Wai movie, My Blueberry Nights, and in the same year, she's the love interest in Fred Claus. Ouch. She did win the SAG Award for supporting that year. She was not moved into it. But I remember there was talk of of her being on the borderline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's a, I would, I think that's fine to be in supporting for that role. She's so, I think it's more to her credit and the performance's credit that she was discussed in that way because she's so commanding when she is on screen in that movie. Yeah. Um, I think Ray, I think Ray Fiennes was kind of slighted that year and not being in the lead actor conversation, but that's a me. She also has, uh, she's one of the love interests in Definitely Maybe, the kind of forgotten Ryan Johnson movie, The Brothers Bloom. Although I stick up for The Brothers Bloom. It's been forever since I've seen it, but um, I should watch that. I remember really loving her in it. Her and Ruffalo and Adrian Brody, I thought, made a great trio. The one I haven't fir- seen is Agora, the uh, <laughs> it, the Amenabar. Uh, Alejandro Amenabar movie, yeah, where she plays. Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, scientist, mathematician, 
uh, Hypatia. Hypatia? Maybe we'll do that movie eventually. Uh, We should, because it definitely did have a degree of Oscar buzz. It was also one of those movies that felt like... It was one of those movies that had the Oscar buzz until people saw it. Well, it was, like, on the uh, release calendar for, like, two years, too. Like, and then it got sort of, like, quietly kicked out the back door. And then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember Uh, she had some buzz for the whistleblower for a second there, too. Like, very briefly, Mm -hmm. right? Well, because that's also... Along with Agora, it was... You know, she has her Oscar, and here she is in her lead role, finally, now yeah, that she's, right. you know, won her Oscar. Um, I don't, I think that movie had somewhat of a mixed reception, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that kind of dampened be. it. That could be. It's interesting but, to place the Deep Blue Sea as sort of, this feels a little bit like a, I don't know why it would be, but like a turning point where it went from, when is Rachel Weiss going to get her opportunities to like, she keeps getting so many opportunities after this. Cause like after the deep blue sea, yeah. she's in like big blockbusters, like the born legacy. She's in, uh, Yorgos movies and, and, um, uh, what's his name? The Italian uh, guy, Sorrentino. Sorrentino. And she's in, even you know, for the ones that aren't well received, like, Oz the Great and Powerful is terrible, and nobody right. remembers that movie whatsoever. That movie made a lot of money. She's working with Sam Raimi. She's, she fought for that role. She's in, like, it was, it was, she's in a lot of advertisements, you know what I mean? Like, it's a high-profile movie, even if, you know, it, I feel like it's a profile raiser, even though it doesn't really succeed creatively, right? Yeah. So, there's that. Um... 2015, as I mentioned, she's in The Lobster for uh, Lanthimos. She's in Youth for Sorrentino. Um, She ends up being in a bunch of costume dramas like The Light Between Oceans and My Cousin Rachel. She's in Sebastian Lelio's Disobedience, which rules and she rules in it. Um, And maybe Rachel McAdams rules even more. You know what I mean? Like everybody in that movie like is really, really good. Um, Alessandro Nivola is really good in that movie it, as a character who a, a lesser me. movie I think wouldn't ask you to give him any sympathy or empathy. Uh-huh. And we got really we got to do dis- uh, uh, disobedience too. That's a great that's a great movie. Um, the Mercy was another one of those movies that felt like it was coming <laughs> out for about two straight years. That was the um, uh, this was another balloon movie, was it? No. Balloons? No. This was, uh, but this was like an explorer movie, right? Sailor. It's a sailing movie. Sorry. It's not balloons. It's sailing. Um, it's her and Colin Firth. It's the guy who directed The Theory of Everything. Oh. From right. a Scott Z. Burns script. And like, nobody saw it. Like, it genuinely, uh, I genuinely don't even know. Died at Tribeca or something? Kind of. Like, maybe not even that. I don't even remember, like, what exactly the release strategy was for it. It just sort of, like, felt like it was on a shelf forever. Um, But anyway, The Mercy. So there was that. Um, And then the favorite is, like, hey, remember who can act the shit out of a role? Rachel (laughs) fucking Vice. And... (laughs) It feels like Rachel Vice gets to tap into finally... The rascally side of herself that we love mm-hmm. in like interviews, mm-hmm. 
Um, well, she was great on the press tour for the favorite. Obviously, that's my beloved THR roundtable where she bewitches Catherine Hahn, body and soul, just by sort of existing. <laughs> and Catherine Hahn is like fiddling with her hair and touching Rachel's hand, and it's so it's incredible. It's so great. At um, this point, she had already she's now married to Daniel Craig and has given delectable quotes where. I think somebody was asking uh, coyly somewhat about their sex life or like what it's like to be such a beautiful couple or something. And Uh she's like, well, we didn't marry each other to play chess. Um, (laughs) uh, Just an incredible uh, wit. Um, I should also mention that uh, this upcoming, whenever they actually happen, Emmy Awards are null and void of of merit because Rachel Weiss was not nominated for her role as twin gynecologists in the Dead Ringers remake. Which even I still have to finish. I think that's the thing. I think people didn't watch the show. I think that's probably true. And I will say, as somebody who, like, I looked at that, I was like, that looks dark and depressing. I maybe don't want to watch it. I watched it for work. It's so worth it. She's so good. Jennifer Ely is so terrifying. Love Jennifer Sean Ely. Sean Durkin and Karen Kusama each direct episodes that are amazingly visually dark and like I know some people were like it was literally too dark I couldn't see anything and I'm like I sympathize <laughs> I sympathize I suppose but like there is something genuinely like portal to hell about the episodes especially that Durkin and Karen Kusama do. It's it's dreadful in like you know what I mean in like it in in that it is full of dread, and I think it's tremendous television. It's one of those things where it's just like if you are going to bother to do the we're making a five part movie, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. at least make it look like a movie, and like Dead Ringers has like visual language to spare. It's so. So good. Honestly, maybe I'll finish it for my spooky season watching. It would be worth it. It would definitely be worth it. Uh, we'll talk about our spooky season watching next week. Um, Mine has been derailed because I agreed to a second screen draft. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have a lot to watch for that second screen. Draft. I know, I know, but it I've hasn't also, been announced. We can't talk. About I've also it. been um, out of town. Like I really like. I I will do more things to derail my spooky season watching. It's too bad because like I always have the best laid plans, and now I'm like hopelessly this behind. This is a good year. It for is what, like people have put on streaming available to stuff for spooky season. It is. Um, back to Rachel. Uh, of her upcoming projects that I really hope this is happening. IMDb listed as in production, so maybe it has an interim agreement. She's reuniting with Colin Farrell for a movie called Love Child that is supposed to be somewhat based on Oedipus okay. or Todd Salons. Okay. I will get loud and annoying for this movie if it does happen. Imagine, yes. Because them being reunited, Todd Salons being back. Them reunited from the lobster, we should say, but yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Her lobster performance, I think, is incredible just on narration alone. I think it's my favorite movie narration. I totally forgot that she narrates that movie. She narrates it like she just smoked two pack of cigarettes, was in an auto accident, and, you know, somebody's hounding her for money. Sure. She sounds so 
uh, done with the human race. <laughs> well, that is kind of her vibe now. It's you know exquisite. what I mean? Like she's she's. I mean, I shouldn't say like I do think she's able to play a wide variety of characters. So like I really, there's nothing that really like sort of nails her down. But like there is a sort of withering quality to the way she addresses people in a lot of movies these days that I genuinely love. This sort of like, you know, the favorite or um, oh what are like my cousin Rachel? She's sort of like that, and it does seem like. Lanthimos uniquely understands what makes her yeah. special in uh, her own way, for lack of a more trite phrase, that I just really hope that they continue to work together. So let's talk about her performance in The Deep Blue Sea, though, because it's it's hard. I feel like this is a difficult character to... You have to really convey a lot of conflicting emotions sort of Mm -hmm. all at once, especially because the bulk of this is happening on a single day where she's so despondent that she's going to kill herself, but she also has to have these, like, demonstrably strong feelings towards both of these men in her life, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there are so many... These relationships that are more complicated than we would maybe reduce them to or we expect them to be at the start of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the estranged husband thing, how many of those movies have we seen? But actually her relationship and the terms that they both seem to agree on Mm -hmm. while still needing each other in this really weird way that they accept is something that I... There's that scene out on the sidewalk... Where after after all the sort of cards are out on the table, it's it's later on in this day, and she's remarkably sort of blunt and upfront with him about why she left him, why Freddie, you know what's going on there, and the movie, and I, you know, the play, you know, this was a, a Radigan's play, obviously, um, doesn't take the easy road with him and make him this sort of sneering, you know, I will have you destroyed kind of person. He's just sort of, he's still in love with her. He says, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and it's sad. It's, 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 you know, it's very sad. Um, she also gets these like incredible sort of dead on shots that hold her face as she's, remembering something or confronting something and i imagine those must be terrifying to film where it's just Mm -hmm. sort of just like it's so close on your face every little every little thought that you have risks betraying this scene do you know what i mean Mm because it's all sort of shows in your face and also just the kind of naked demand that you as a performer be interesting yes (laughs) you know it yes yeah but she kills it. She's so good. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I mean, in that way, her ability to convey all of these conflicting things sometimes wordlessly makes her a bit of the ideal mm-hmm. Terrence Davies performer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Especially for like material like this, where it's like... It's not like it's incredibly wordy. She doesn't really get a lot of text to help her, you know, sell where this character is at. Right, 
Talk a little it's a bit. Brief movie. It's like a ninety-minute movie. It's a ninety-minute movie. You wouldn't think so, but it is. Talk about the scene where she and uh, Sir uh, uh, Sir William, Lord William, what's Simon Russell Beale, go visit his mother in the country. Oh my God, his awful mother! His awful and how mother. she just like looks for every opportunity to cut her down to size. Every single and- comment, every single thing she says is intended to wound uh hester and you know rachel vice plays it in a way that like it does wound her deeply and we realize not only this character you know taking all of these hits basically Mm -hmm. but the realization coming over her that the two of them are never going to be able to work together because of this type of situation you know how fatal it is to her the fatal realization that her marriage will never work because of, you know, this relationship and this dynamic, you know? Well, that he, like, doesn't stand up for her to his mother, that yeah. he will always sort of defer to her. And, oh, yeah. And that's Brutal. when she, like, goes upstairs Brutal. and, like, calls up Freddy and, like, gets, like, caught. Like, you know, I think there's a, there's a big part of her that does not care to hide this anymore that she's on the phone and she says oh darling i'll meet you at whatever and her back is to simon russell beale but like the door's open it's not like you know she's doing very much to hide this phone call so as much as davies movies you know contain multitudes uh in that there is no like quintessential davies scene but like there the element of brutality in his movies i think he makes very brutal movies in that like it's never violence it's never uh sometimes you know horrific things happen to his characters but brutal in the way of like the way we can be so like emotionally as people devastated to our core by something whether it's an interaction whether it's something that happens in the world or to us like the way that that can that pain can feel so personal and internal Mm -hmm. davies captures that in every single one of his movies in a way that just like will knock you sideways and that scene was very yeah true to that i felt because it's like we've all been that character where it's just like we're so cut down to size by this person who you know destroys us so easily right so the movie comes out in the united states in march we sort of fast forward to the fall um we're in award season and the main contenders are sort of shaping up to be once we get to through Toronto, Jennifer Lawrence is on the map for Silver Linings Playbook for sure. I can't remember when Jessica Chastain started to like accumulate buzz, but like that was happening. That movie was a question mark until I don't think it screened until screened like, very Thanksgiving late. time. But then late. it was immediate like one of my very first press screenings that I ever saw was uh, yeah. was Zero Dark Thirty. Um, Amour was taking from Cannes throughout the season to, you know, really have this cumulative effect. But, you know, there was always whispers for Emmanuel Riva. And Beasts of the Southern Wild was a Sundance movie. But, like, there was a long time during that season where people thought both Emmanuel Riva and Kavanjane Wallace would miss because Kavanjane mm-hmm. Wallace, because she's a kid, and Emmanuel Riva, because she's not American and she was not really able to she campaign wasn't able as to campaign. much. And right, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
It's a kind of a wild, wide open year. And so into this year, Rachel Weiss, is, Rachel Weiss manages to grab the New York Film Critics Circle prize for Best Actress, which she beats out. The runners-up at New York Film Critics Circle that year were the three, you know, main suspects for the Oscar race, right? Jessica Chastain and Zero Dark Thirty, which had one film and director at that New York Film Critics Circle. So, like, clearly she was a big contender for actress as well. Jennifer Lawrence uh, and then Emmanuel Riva. And it'd be, I'd love to talk to somebody who was in the room and just be like, was this a, we couldn't decide between Chastain and Lawrence. So vice was a, you know, was this a reaction to the many raised eyebrows when they awarded Meryl Streep, the prize the year before for the (laughs) iron lady? Maybe. Um, but however it, you know, shook out good for, uh, good for Rachel vice, a very, you know, a deserving win, I would say, that year. This is a category that for the New York Film Critics Circle, you know, they like to make a choice. They like to, uh, whether give someone a real leg up in the race like they did for Whites, or, you know, they really want to... Endorsement matters to this group. Yeah. Recent winners of this category include Regina Hall for Support the Girls, Lupita Nyong'o for Us, Sydney Flanagan for Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, and once again in a choice, Stephanie Germanata for House of Gucci. I love that. They also have seemingly in recent years become more aware of kind of spreading the wealth that if we're going to give a movie a prize yeah. here, we're not going to so much, which is was not the case in 2012. Like I said, Zero Dark Thirty one picture and director. Lincoln won actor, supporting actress, screenplay. So um, Zero Dark Thirty also wins cinematography, I should also mention. So like it was basically those two movies and like a smattering of other things for The Deep Blue Sea. McConaughey wins supporting actor that year for Magic Mike and Bernie together. It's interesting that it was well, I guess his other movies from the from the McConaissance were previous year right killer joe was 2011 and mud was mud was 2012 but they probably would have considered him a lead Mm, yeah that's true that's true um maybe mud was 2012 can and then came out in 23 perhaps perhaps (laughs) go back to our mud episode we can tell you there yes um so anyway an interesting i always love when the critics groups publish their runners up i think it's much more interesting I know that New York Film Critics Circle is one of those ones that tries to tell its members that they're not allowed to talk about uh, anything that happens in the room and yada, 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 which to me, it's because like... Because a lot of this used to be reported, etc. But like, I, I get if you don't want to like talk about like the arguments in the room where somebody is like, Jennifer Lawrence doesn't deserve shit, like that kind of thing. But like... Yeah, there are critics group that get all of their uh, winners to show up, too. Right. But like... Mention your runners up. It's fun. It's nice. It's more names that get nominated. <laughs> like you know what I mean. Like I, I, I can understand if sure. somebody's like, oh, sure. I feel raw that I came close but didn't get it. But like I don't know. But it's a great call because her performance is absolutely incredible and among her best. And you know, it's it, it, it not to you know keep belaboring the point, but it is a real uh, <laughs> injustice is not the word, but it it sucks that the work of Davies 
throughout his career didn't land, you know, recognition in this way often. You know, this is probably his most recognized movie in that way. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Gillian Anderson also had some precursor action for The House of Mirth in a similar way, right? I thought it was less than you would imagine. Maybe. Let's pull up House of Mirth and see. BAFTA nominated it for Best British Film and Costume Design. Okay. So not even BAFTA was into the Terrence Davies thing. That's too bad. No, no. Um, I I think the Best British Film nomination for this movie is the only nomination that he ever got i might be wrong about britain. that come on britain uh jillian anderson was one of the runner-ups for new york critics yeah okay yeah that's it okay like so rachel then also gets nominated for the golden globe that year uh, does this not is a win. a great nomination for uh, sometimes the Globes do a good thing sometimes. and go their own way. Although, look at this category. It's like the Globes give and the Globes take because also you get Helen Mirren for Hitchcock, which... Okay, but this this race was really shaping up to be like Helen Mirren is seriously getting nominated for Hitchcock. Well, remember there was that like three-year or five-year stretch where in many of those years... Helen Mirren was getting all the precursors and then would stop just short of an Oscar nomination. Trumbo was that way. Um, she was SAG nominated and BAFTA nominated for Hitchcock. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, like, it's interesting. The year of Trumbo, the big she was... sudden snub this year, though, who Rachel Weiss was also nominated for the Globe with, is actually Marion Cotillard for Rust and Bone. She was right up she in gets... there until the very last minute. Yep. Including a Critics' Choice nomination. Yes. Who do we now? We, I guess, it was just sort of a case where there were six people for five slots, and ultimately, whether it's Quivanjane Wallace or Naomi Watts for The Impossible, who nabbed the slot instead of Marion. You know, it's tough to say. Again, we'd love to look at those voting totals, but it does seem Naomi like Naomi Watts, the little train that just kept on chugging all season because that movie never really landed. I like that movie and I like that, that performance. But yeah, yeah it's a good movie. Yeah. She's good in the movie. Yeah. Um Yeah. But yeah. Um well, you looked up the the other actresses who have played the role of Hester on stage and the stage play of the Deep Blue Sea. I think that's an interesting. It's a it's a pretty formidable group. Yeah. Uh, Peggy Ashcroft, Margaret Sullivan, Blythe Danner, and Helen McCrory all played this role on the stage. Helen McCrory, who was also on Penny Dreadful with uh, uh, Simon Russell Beale. So there we go. Peggy Ashcroft, an Oscar winner uh, in her time for uh, a passage to India. Margaret Sullivan, a nominee. Right. Blythe Danner, never nominated, but, you know, we love her. We do love her. We Tony love winner? Does she have a Tony? Let's see. Blythe? She's definitely nominated for that one Follies revival. Oh, she was in Follies? Yeah. Interesting. I believe it was the first Broadway revival of Follies. Oh, fantastic. Let's I don't see. think it did well. Awards and nominations. Follies is hard, man. She won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play in 1970 for Butterflies Are Free. She won, of course, we all remember the back-to-back Emmy Awards that she won for the Showtime series Huff. We all remember Huff. Um, (laughs) Huff is Ted Danson? What's that? Huff is Hank Azaria. 
Becker Got it. is dancing. Um, she won the Theater World Award in 1969 for a play called The Miser. She won a Saturn Award for Best Actress in 1976 for a science fiction movie called Future World that I believe is a Westworld sequel. It is. It's a Westworld sure. sequel uh, starring Peter Fonda and Arthur Hill and Yul Brynner is still in this one. Uh, yeah, she won a Saturn Award for that. So what's the version of a BAFTA that's a Tony, a Saturn, an Emmy, and giving birth to Gwyneth Paltrow? That's a... Uh, a Beggs. There we go. BAFTA, Emmy, Gwyneth, Gwyneth Saturn. Saturn. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Blythe Danner are only Beggs, I can say. <laughs> So, um, good for you, Blythe. Very good. We are going to be, we're going to look back and be like, what was that episode where we said that dumb thing about Blythe Danner winning uh, uh, something called the Begs? And we're not going to be able to remember it because it's in their Deep Lucy episode that, like, she's so tangentially related to. <laughs> this is how it happens, everybody. This is how the soup is made. Um, I want to loop back to the Davies filmography. I know we it. probably ran through this in our House of Mirth episode, but that would have been a while ago. It was a while and, ago. Yeah. You know, given his passing, it's good to shout out uh, his work as much as we can. Listeners should go and check it out because he is definitely an underseen and underappreciated filmmaker sure. who, you know, if anything uh, good can come from his sad passing, it's that people can you know, come to know his work better. He originally made a series of shorts that has since been combined and considered mm-hmm. a feature called the uh, his trilogy. Um, but his debut feature is Distant Voices Still Lives, which got a ton of praise at the time. Uh, it's kind of this, like, tapestry of Liverpool life. Um you know the the half joke that i said earlier of like you know sequences of people just singing in bars that's a good chunk of that, sure. that uh, making the joke of that movie but sure. like it is a, a very exquisite movie even people like godard praise that movie um and long day closes feels like such a natural extension of that movie it almost feels like you could wrap them up together and it's like right. it just zeroes on in on this one child but it's it's its own thing as well. And obviously, you know, quite autobiographical. And I feel like, you know, because he's on this trajectory, that was a can competition movie. And then his follow up to that really was so poorly well received. It was the neon Bible, which is an adaptation of like a Southern novel. So it's like, he's also, going from this very particular unique Liverpool life to Mm. doing an American set story. So I think people were ready to be skeptical about it. It's a movie that also is not completely successful in what it's doing. It's definitely his weakest movie, I think, but like there's, there's good qualities there and it has Jenna Rollins. So who are we to complain? Right. But I do think it set his career off in a trajectory. It definitely took a lot of the winds out of the sails. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, uh, at that, you know, at that point where it's like, you know, 
you maybe take a creative leap when you're on an ascent and then you get knocked down a peg and the career doesn't ever, you know, gain that momentum back in the way of public excitement and reception, you know. After Neon Bible, he never plays can competition again. And it's like, you look at these movies and it's like, why? Yeah, everything (laughs) he makes after Neon Bible feels very much like it could have played a can. Of time and... Of Time in the City, the, you know, Liverpool nonfiction film that he makes plays out of competition mm-hmm. in Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, Tiff really becomes his home with his next film, which is House of Mirth. Mm-hmm. Um, because every film after that played Tiff, I believe. Um, including, I think the only one where it didn't world premiere at Tiff is A Quiet Passion, which played Berlin. He was never invited to Venice. Um, but it's House of Mirth in 2000. You have Of Time in the City in 08. But Deep Blue Sea is his first fiction feature in over a decade. Right. Um, then you have Sunset Song, which he had was a passion project he'd been trying to make for years in 2015. Next year, it's A Quiet Passion, the Emily Dickinson movie that is very good. Cynthia Nixon is very good, as Jennifer Ely is as well. And his final film, Benediction. Yeah. Um, which we've talked at length about. We have, um, and we will. They're all very future. good. Yes, we sh- yes. Mostly uh, available somewhere. House of Mirth used to be really hard to get your hands on. Uh, it's on Paramount Plus. As of I feel like Paramount. when we did it, I like bought the DVD. I like have a DVD. Of it was House the hardest Mirth. movie we ever had to get our hands yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Um. Yeah. A fantastic filmmaker, I should say. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. what What else, what, what can you say? And somebody who is not in maybe the public consciousness the way that other of his contemporaries are and that right. he, you know, probably deserves to be. So You can see how he's not mainstream, but I don't think he's doing anything... He's certainly you watch two Terrence Davies movies and you can spot a Terrence Davies-ism. You know, you can kind right. of understand at least where he's coming from in terms of cinematic style. Well, so the movies of his But oh, it's sorry. not that challenging to audiences, no. you know, where it's no. like it's not, you know, like maybe pe- you won't fully get it, you know, wh- at what his perspective is from watching one movie, but it's not like it's not baffling to anybody. But I you think know, it's not. I think the packaging for these movies make people think that they're going to be boring or that they're going to be slow or that they're going to be long. You know what I mean? Like, and they're mm-hmm. none of those things, actually. But like, I think Benediction's his longest movie and it's like two hours and 15 minutes. And Benediction like hums along as far as I'm concerned. But like, yeah. The House of Mirth, Deep Blue Sea, like a quiet passion. Is Sunset Song also a period piece, I imagine? Yes. Yeah. So these are all of these movies that are like period pieces, costume dramas, and those movies have attained such a reputation. And it's just funny to me that Davies has never attained a reputation of somebody who does period piece costume drama with an especially with with, you know, a special urgency to it or a special like spark Mm -hmm. to it. Like he does those movies and they never feel like the same old, same old. Even something like mm-hmm. The House of Mirth, which is Edith Wharton. Edith Wharton? Yes. Um, yes. 
or like a quiet passion where it's like oh come watch my emily dickinson biopic and i know we have we've had like a television show that's like emily dickinson but it's like cool emily dickinson eh, you know what i mean and those like, those both dickinson a show i love and uh quiet passion a movie i love uh have i think a similar point of view but are so totally different in what they're doing in a way that i find very interesting right um but i just think yeah you're right it's like he on the surface of them these are movies that i think were too easy for people to reduce as stuffy Mm -hmm. when they're far more interesting than the way yes these movies and not in these like high concept ostentatious ways but just just in execution just in the way that he executes or his you know perspective that he puts on things or there's an immersiveness to you know the type of life he's depicting the way memory and the passage of time is i find it very absorbing as a viewer um yeah and also i mean I think this is something that's really come into focus with his death for a lot of people who love his work is that, you know, most of his work was adaptations or it's like the way that he does, you know, the poetry of Siegfried Sassoon or Emily Dickinson, you know, Mm -hmm. it feels as much like he's adapting their work as making a story about their life. As much as all of the, his work is sourced in something else Every single one of his movies is about him and his yes. view of the world. Yes. And, like, not to be too reductive of it, but, like, the way we talk about, like, Scorsese, like, Scorsese. all Scorsese movies are about Scorsese's view of the world. And, you know, his experience, you know. Godard. We should be. Sorry, we should, I'm just doing this. <laughs> Louch. Um, we should be able to talk about someone like Terrence Davies in that way, because that's what his movies are. Um, yeah. 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 Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, we mentioned the Molly Malone sing along in the, the tube, the London uh, uh, underground during the blitz. There's also though, the, you belong to me sing along in the pub. That is, mm-hmm. I think equally gorgeous. And that to me is where, like, that's where you sell the romance between Hester and Freddy and sort of the, like, this, it just seems like, oh, who wouldn't want this life of this sort of vibrant, deeply felt, you know, love that she has for him in this, you know, wonderful little setting, this, like, idyllic, english pub a whole english pub full of like (laughs) you know friendly faces all singing this 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 lovely gorgeous song and everybody's singing to their sweethearts and um i don't know i just loved it i loved it you know what good movie good movie all right you know what special filmmaker yes exactly well we hope we did good tribute uh and we can be we'll be back we'll be back for other terrence davies movies along the way all right joseph would you like to move on to the imdb game by explaining to our lovely listeners i would in fact uh every week we have our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or actress and we try and guess the top four titles that imdb says they are most known for if any of those titles are television voice only performances or non-acting credits we mentioned that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles released years as a clue and if that is not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints 
and a free for all of memories and uh, 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 lovely times had with old loves and and whatnot. Indeed, indeed. Uh, my good sir, would you like to give or guess first? I'll give first. Whom's to do you have part of? So I mentioned the outfit, the movie that Simon Russell Beale plays a Chicago gangster in. He the the main character and protagonist of that film uh, is a man played by Mark Rylance, who oh. I don't think we've ever done for this podcast in this game. So why don't you tackle Mark Rylance? Hmm. The- no television. I- no, like, theater filmed for, you know... <laughs> right. Um, my genuine question, the curiosity question is, the BFG is there, but I would be willing to bet that he's not credited as voice because it's mocap. Your face is defying nothing. So I'm going to say the BFG? The BFG, correct. Your assumption was correct. Um, Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies, correct. His Oscar win. I feel like the big short showed up for somebody, and I have to take the opportunity to talk about how abysmal he is in that movie. And I'm going to say the big short. He's in the big short? Not the big short. Not the big short. Don't look up. I was going to say, I didn't think he was in the big short. Don't look up. No, not don't look up. Strike one. Ready Player One. Not Ready Player One, Strike Two. Wow. All right. Your remaining films are 2017 and 2020. Okay, so the outfit wasn't... The outfit was 2022. Two. Okay. So what's his 2020 movie that is obviously Forgotten? Oh, it's uh, Trial of Chicago 7. Trial of Chicago 7, where I am of the opinion that he should have been the supporting actor nominee out of that movie. I thought he's so good in that movie. Um, I don't think I could pull out a single All performance right, I that know. I You don't like that remember. movie. Joe's a dummy. It's fine. I, didn't, I don't think you're stupid. I just don't <laughs> remember that movie is what I'm saying. I remember no element of that movie. Uh, okay. One more. Um... Uh, I would never think that you're stupid. Um, 2017. 2017. What was he? I feel like he's in another movie I don't like from 2017, because I don't like a lot of his screen performances. I do think you like this. Oh, how nice. I do. Um, Maybe not, like, passionately, but I feel like you like this movie. Okay, so... I mean, he's really not in much that isn't released during awards season, so it has to be something like that. He does a lot of Spielberg now, but did Spielberg have a movie in 2017? No, yeah, Spielberg had the post, but he's not in the post. He is not um, in the post. Did Spielberg have two in 2017? Um, hmm... Rylance, he's always doing a thing and a voice, and it's all going together in a soup. Um, what did you think of him in Bones and All? <laughs> Besides the fact that he play, he's playing the pedophile from Family Guy. <laughs> um, 
I I I have less. We can talk about it whenever we do bones and all. Yeah, we got to do bones um, and all. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Anybody who wants to have a strong opinion about his performance in that movie, let them have it. Okay. Is my idea because, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, he's fine. I really compared really... to how I usually hate him in movies. For me to not have an opinion on him in a movie is a win. I really thought um, he was headed to a Zellweger in Cold Mountain style nomination last year for, <laughs> for that. So you're saying you think he's bad? Um, but in a way that I found so watchable. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh. Is it like his performance in Bones and All? Is that why you asked? No. This question? No. Actually, this is um. Uh, not to just start throwing so many hints. This is a this is a pretty restrained. This is like you know you get like restrained violence. I think this is kind of peak restrained violence. Oh, okay. Ooh, nothing that I was on the track of was like that. So makes sense that I maybe like this movie. Is it a British film? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Oh, okay. Very much so. In twenty seventeen. That was probably Oscar season or Oscar nominated. Well, you're right and wrong about that. Oscar season, not nominated. Nope. Nominated, not Oscar season. Right. Okay. So what was nominated out of the fall that year? 2017. Uh, He's not in Get Out. He's. I will say, not... I weirdly always forget this one. Oh, I'm... it's Dunkirk. It's Dunkirk. Yes, it's Dunkirk. You like Dunkirk, right? I'm not mistaken there, right? He's fine in Dunkirk. I I do like. Dunkirk you like the movie quite a bit. though? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's stupid. I should have guessed that. I, you know, the reason I didn't is because I'm like eight million thinking people. Rylance does a thing. Yeah. It is a little weird that Rylance wasn't nominated for Dunkirk. We're gonna look back on that movie in years to come and be like wait one movie had barry keoghan and tom hardy and jack loudon and telling you uh uh who else like who are the like harry styles (laughs) harry styles killian murphy you know what i mean like there's a world one of the Finns. Finn Whitehead. I can still, I can't, I'm not the person who's like, oh, all handsome young British guys look the same, but I truly can't pick Finn Whitehead out of a lineup. Like, it's going to take a few <laughs> You more can movies. pin Finn Whitehead because he was on the poster. Even still, even still, it's tough. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but like, the talent that is packed into this movie is of the like, this like whole generation of like young British white boys is just very kind of funny to me. Um, uh, but but like genuinely, there is a world in which in five years, Barry Keoghan, Killian Murphy, Jack Loudon are all like Oscar winners for various things. Like who the hell knows? Um, anyway, to go with Mark Rylance's Oscar, well done. Thank you. All right. So for you, I went a very very different route. Uh, the movie we are talking about today, The Deep Blue Sea, is in a constant uh, search engine optimization battle with another mm-hmm. film titled The Deep Blue Sea. That movie is a very silly horror film about sharks, who the headliner of the movie is none other than Mr. Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane, Jane I was going to say, not Samuel L. Jackson. Um, I think that one is... No television, so no hung. I think that one is just Deep Blue Sea, but yes. Um, 
yes. Rather than the uh, correct the, dom- the, de- no the definite the. article. Okay, so no hung, no um, Arrested Development guest appearance, no sixty one where he's uh, in a television movie where he plays Mickey Mantle. What's that? Um, Tom slash Thomas Jane. I'm going to say Deep Blue Sea is one of them. Correct. Okay. He had a weird little moment there. He's in Boogie Nights for like half a second, but it's like truly half a second. So um, I'm going to put a pin in that. There's def- he's in the cocaine sequence, right? Yes. He's, uh, he's, he's at one Molina's of the. House. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's one of the people that Melina terrorizes. Yes. He's the one who like, God, brings Melina's them so there. The um, okay. No. He's like, there's definitely a movie or two where he's like one spoke of a love triangle or something like that. And I can't think of it now. Oh, is The Mist one of them? The Mist is one of them. Okay. So I'm missing two. All right. Tom Jane, Tom Jane. Steve Holtz. Um Oh, come on, Thomas Jane. Is he in like Ghost Ship or am I just conflating aquatic horror? <laughs> I do not believe he is in Ghost Ship, but I will check. Is that a guess? <sighs> no, he's not in Ghost Ship. Um um Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is great. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I will I will uh, say that Ghost Ship is not a guess because he is not in it. Yeah. All right. Thomas Jane. Isn't he? Is He's in Wonderland, I think, right? The John Please. Holmes movie? That's a guess. Because if it's not that... Uh, well, it's he... incorrect. Okay. Um, he, as I guess, it is incorrect. I do not see him credited. Maybe I'm just conflating that with Boogie Nights as well. Uh-uh. Oh, oh, he plays Mickey Mantle in '61. It's a sports thing. Yes, That's why I've never seen. It. Yes, um, I will also give you the. I think the love triangle, even though it's not a love triangle that you're thinking of, and it's not in his known for, is uh, the sweetest thing. I think that is probably true. Yes. A romantic comedy that I used to be obsessed with. That's, uh, the, the, that's the, the raunchy girls on the road uh, romantic comedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Alright, I'm gonna burn a guess and just say 61, even though that's not a... Uh, Alright, then you're burning your guess. Yeah. Your year is 1998. Okay. So right before Deep Blue He sea. is billed as Tom Jane. <laughs> yeah. Is he a lead in this movie? Definitely not. Okay. 98. Is it like... A real question mark of who the lead of this movie really is. Okay. Is it a movie I've seen? I think you've seen this. I, no, you've seen this. You've seen okay. this. Okay. This is an incredible movie. Oh. Okay. 98. What are my 98? Very, very big cast. American. Which is maybe why he's not coming out to you. American. American movie. Big cast, but not like Saving Private Ryan. Or the. Definitely not Saving Private Ryan. Is it the Thin Red Line? 
It's the thin red. Oh, of course. He's <laughs> I, I shouldn't have given you that. No, it would have been my next guess. But... It would have absolutely yeah. been my next guess anyway. Um, in fact, it should have been my first guess because, like, of course, that makes a total lot of sense that he's in the thin red line. Listeners, if he actually is one of the potential leads of that movie, don't yell at me. <laughs> I don't remember anyone in that movie. I just remember thinking that that's. I think your movie. leads in that movie are Ben Chaplin and and T- Jim Caviezel. I'm pretty sure. Well, it's definitely not Adrian Brody. It's definitely not Adrian Brody. Right, yeah. I always remember George Clooney in the movie because it's like Clooney... Is he in it a lot? one scene is like at the very end of the movie. I know Nolte's and in a good amount of the movie. I don't know. It's been so long. It's been so long. Catch me on long. the right day and I say it's the best Malick movie. Um, All right. Yeah. All right. Well done. We did it. We did it. It's done. That is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, Instagram at thisheadoscarbuzz, and our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisheadoscarbuzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Uh, Yeah, Letterboxd and Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at File. that's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance, and Taylor Cole for our theme music. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, not Stitcher, I need to take that out of the copy, uh, Stitcher (laughs) is dead, Uh, wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so go slam that fifth star and tell us what a cockle is uh that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz and some booze (laughs) halloween